want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be picking up in verse 35. So we've been following along throughout chapter 7 um, with Luke's story of what happened to one of the deacons of the church, Stephen. The deacons of the early church. You remember Stephen? We learned about him uh, a little while ago. I mean, we've been learning about him, but he was one of the seven men that were chosen to minister to the widows, the Hellenistic widows. And we learned about his, um, how he was full of the spirit and wisdom and that the Lord used him more than just in that ministry to the widows, but he used him to uh, preach the gospel where he was at. And we learned that um, because he was going around preaching the gospel and the Lord was giving him power to heal and to, uh, to work signs and wonders, that it brought some attention upon him from the, the synagogue of the freedmen, these, this group of, of uh, former slaves who had uh, gone into Jerusalem and had developed this, uh, put together the synagogue, and they were all... Uh, we learned in the end of chapter 6, they were disputing with Stephen. But they couldn't, they couldn't overcome him. You know, Stephen was always able to, um, to confound their, their arguments. And so we learned that they had to uh, come up with some false witnesses in order to trap him. And they accused him of blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the law and the temple. And so what we've been studying over the past week was Stephen's response. In verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? Are you saying these things? Are you blaspheming God this way? Are you blaspheming Moses this way, the law, the temple? Are you speaking out against it? And so far, we've seen Stephen recite his, Israel's history to these religious leaders. As he stands before them on this account of blasphemy. And he highlights these key times in Israel's history to show how God was working and how Israel had been resistant to it. Stephen also showed how God called out a man named Abraham. And promised to make him a great nation, to give him descendants and to give him land, of which he had neither. And how this same people, uh, God throughout their history, have been resistant to his work in and through them. So this same Israel was resistant to God, working throughout their history. And he gave them the examples of Joseph and Moses, both having been rejected by their own people and used by God to, to deliver them. And so, so far, Stephen has uh, illustrated for us how Israel has had a history of rejecting the one God has sent and used to deliver them. And Stephen will dig a little deeper to show that they haven't just rejected men, but God himself. 
and have rejected his Messiah, their true deliverer. So let's look at verse 35. We'll pick up a couple verses from last week. As he continues to describe Moses and what God was doing in and through Moses. So if you're in chapter 7, verse 35, say amen. Amen. All right, let's read. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer? By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made, made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And so as we're continuing from last week discussing Moses, we saw how God had delivered Israel by Moses, how God had, at a, at a time in which he was going to fulfill his promise to bring the people, his people, Israel, out of captivity and into the promised land, as that time drew near, that time which God had sworn to Abraham, God raised up Moses in Egypt. And we saw that he was accepted, Moses was accepted by a Gentile nation, as we see, or figuratively speaking, he is received by uh, Pharaoh's daughter and raised by a Gentile nation learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, in the, and he was mighty in word, words and deeds. And Moses, it said it came into his heart that he went to go visit his brethren to see what was going on, those that were in captivity, those that were uh, in bondage. And he knew like within himself that God must have placed me here for a reason, to deliver these people, my people. And he supposed that they would have understood that too, seeing that one of their very own was raised in the courts of Pharaoh. But we're told that they didn't understand that and that they pushed him away when he came to save them, to help them. And they rejected him. And so we saw Moses went away for 40 years 
into the land of Midian. And that's when he had this encounter with God in the burning bush. And God had uh, commissioned him and said, I have seen, in verse 34 or 7, I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. See who is the one that's delivering them? This is God. And then he says, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So God is the one delivering Egypt from their situation, or delivering Israel from Egypt. And he's sending Moses to do it. And Stephen picks up today in verse 35 saying, this, is, this Moses is the one that they rejected. They rejected him at first. And God, even though they rejected Moses, still sent him to deliver them. Even though Israel rejected Moses at first, he still remains God's chosen vessel to deliver Israel. Now, in verse 37, Stephen repeats a passage that Peter once repeated back in Acts chapter 3. It says, This Moses, the one that they rejected, the one that God used to bring them out, who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now, this is a, a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I actually would like to look at that passage today. Chapter 18, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to be in chapter 18. And this is the word of the Lord to Israel coming through Moses. And he's given them instruction. And I, I want to get a running start and get some context here. This is before they had entered into the, into the promised land. Actually, Deuteronomy is pretty much a recap of much of Exodus as a reminder before they go into the land. And that gives you a little context for where we're going to start in verse 9. Whenever there's an Old Testament reference in the New Testament, I always find it much more illuminating, I guess you could say, when you go back and actually read the whole context of even where that passage came from. Because the passage is making a truthful point, but it almost brings in a fuller understanding of what was going on at the time. And why even Stephen would say or use that scripture so looking at verse 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. It's uh, speaking of idol worship, the idol worship of Moloch, which we'll learn more about. There shall not, or, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one, one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritualist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. 
You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. You don't have soothsayers and diviners. And Moses goes on to say this in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. From your brethren, him you shall hear. And that's where we have Stephen stop. But in verse 16, it goes on to say, According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And he shall be, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Then Moses goes on to describe false prophets. So you get a fuller picture here, right? God is contrasting the who he is going to raise up to proclaim his word to Israel, like Moses. Moses became that mouthpiece of God to Israel. He is the one that went up on the hill and got the commandments from the Lord and brought them down to the people. He is the one that God called at the burning bush to go and bring the people out. God used Moses in a mighty way. And there was going to be a temptation to go into the land and they were going to see these nations who had soothsayers and diviners and people who uh, would worship these false gods through these idols. And God says, I haven't appointed anybody like that for you. I will elect a prophet. God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, from your brethren. Him you shall hear now, going back to Acts, Stephen is making the case, and he drops us in here, right here. Because Jesus, as we learned from Peter's reference in Acts 3, is that prophet. This is the message they've been preaching from the get-go. This is uh, one of those things that these religious leaders had already heard being taught and would know what Stephen is saying here, that he's making a reference to Jesus as this prophet. Him you shall hear, is what he says. Now, he goes on to say, this is he, speaking of Moses again in verse 38, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, this is he, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. So he's highlighting another aspect to Israel's history that they tend to forget about. They elevate Moses, but they don't realize that they're committing the same uh, rejection of him as their father's. Because Moses is talking about the Messiah that would come and you shall hear him and they're, not, they're failing to do so. And it's the same Moses who their fathers rejected and would not obey. You see, in Exodus 24, 
All the people affirmed and pledged obedience to the Lord. Moses goes up to meet with God. He receives the word of God, the commandments, and he was gone for 40 days and for 40 nights. And we read here in verse 39, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. It was during that time that Moses was up on the hill or up on the mountain with the Lord that Israel's hearts began to long after Egypt. In Exodus 32, while Moses is away, Israel, they could not wait any longer for Moses. And Aaron instructs them to bring to him gold and he makes an idol for Israel to worship saying that this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Impatience. Within, within a month's time, Israel had turned from their pledge of obedience to God to the worship of an idol. That quickly. And this was something that they had made and they had fashioned. As we learned, uh, if you read in Egypt, it's Aaron that does this. But we, we see that uh, Stephen here uh, connects it with the whole congregation of Israel. They were as fault as Aaron was, just as a, at fault as Aaron was. But how quickly things can change. How quickly our allegiance to God can change if we are not uh, waiting upon him. We need to take heed unless we fall as well. And it says that their hearts turn back to Egypt saying, Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him or what has become of him. And they, Aaron attributing it to the, Aaron made the calf and they accepted it, made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And so you see them, they worship this God, they, cre- they made sacrifices to this, this idol. And they, would, they were rejoicing and dancing and, and at the work of their own hands. And how Stephen is connecting them with the heathen nations who worship uh, their gods through the image. Now, whenever you see those little images of gods set up around, you see the little Buddhas or the little... Uh, Hindu gods and different things, they're set up. They're not actually worshiping that little, that little, uh, you know, image there, but they're actually worshiping the God behind it. And so, uh, that's just what Israel was doing. They were falling in line with what the rest of the heathen nations were doing. What they had seen happen in Egypt, no doubt, and so they turned from God. And we read in verse 42 that God gave them up to worship the works of their own hands or to worship the host of heavens as it is written in the book of the prophets. Now, when he says that God gave them up to worship the host of heavens, this was to really the worship of the sun, the moon, the stars, and also the spiritual powers at work behind these false gods. And they become 
entrenched in worshiping these false deities of the surrounding nations. And I think that what is the most pointed part in this verse is that God gave them up. This was something that people, they were desiring to do. And the Lord was like, you want that? You want that over me? By all means, have it. And I think that that is the place of this world today. This man rejects the Savior. He's giving them what they want. To worship the hosts of heaven. Of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets. Now the, the book of the prophets was um, the 12 minor prophets. And it was all considered in the Hebrew understanding one book. But the quote is coming from uh, Amos chapter 5. And he says, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. See, He's calling them out on the, on the carpet here. Was it only to me that you offered sacrifices when you were in the wilderness? And he goes, no. You also were worshiping idols this whole time. And Israel's worship historically has always been divided. God called them out a singular people to live after him to accomplish his will in this world, that he might display his glory through them. And Israel was divided much of the time. If you've been reading through the kings, and there's only a handful of kings that actually got rid of the idols, many of them embraced the idol worship of the, the surrounding nations. Now, Amos is referring to them in the 40 years in the wilderness. We learned that they had uh, taken up these idols and worshipped them. It says, you took up the tabernacle of Moloch. Now, Moloch was uh, symbolized by the Venus star. And it was the god of the Ammonites. It was like an ox-headed god or image that they worshipped. And the way that they worshipped him was through child sacrifice, human sacrifice. It's this big iron god with the ox head and its arms were laid out like this. And it had a, a gap within the, the vessel of the body of that god and they would heat it up with fire. And so they would then lay the, the child onto the hands and it would... Uh, cook them and uh, sacrifice them. One of the most horrific things, hard to even talk about it. But that was how Moloch was worshipped. And there is a connection even with this next star of your god, Remphan. And you can trace this god back to the Babylonians and Egypt and uh, some of the Arab nations, and it was uh, also symbolized as a star of Saturn. So 
so they had accepted these forms of idol worship among themselves. Images that they said, or Amos says, which you made. So this was a, a volition thing. They had chosen to make these images and to worship them. It was deliberate. And we see the word of the Lord that I will carry you away to Babylon. Now that matters because Babylon was, had come after Israel had entered into the promised land. Babylon was a, a speaks of captivity in exile, a displacement from God's promises, a displacement from his protection. And they were carried away because of this idol worship, because they had failed to see God, the God of glory in their lives and his history of delivering them because they had a divided heart It's interesting how idol worship affects our own lives. We might not have a little statue anymore, but that we have the same ability to create idols and worship at them. I found this interesting illustration. It was called uh, In the Wounded Healer. Or the, the story is from this little book called The Wounded Healer. A man named Henry uh, Nowen retells a tale from ancient India where four royal brothers decided to master a special ability. And time went by and the brothers met to reveal what they had learned. I have mastered a science, said the first, by which I can take but a bone of some creature and create the flesh that goes with it. I, said the second, know how to grow that creature's skin and hair if there is flesh on its bones. The third said, I am able to create its limbs if I have flesh, the skin, and the hair. And I concluded to the fourth, and I concluded the fourth, know how to give life to that creature if its form is complete. Thereupon, the brothers went into the jungle to find a bone so that they could demonstrate their special abilities. As fate would have it, the bone they found was a lion's. One added flesh to the bone. The second grew hide and hair. The third completed it with matching limbs. And the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on his creators. He killed them all and vanished contentedly into the jungle. You see, just like the creation of idols, just like these men could find a special ability and create a lion from a bone, and he would come back to destroy them, the same is true with idols in our hearts. Our idols today are more about ourself than a little image on the shelf. And there's some basic principles when it comes to idols. Every person, every person is serving gods in his life. Whether it's the one true God 
or if it's a false god. Everyone is serving one. Every person is transformed into the image of his God. Whatever it is that you hold to be the most precious thing in your life, you will become like that thing. There's so many examples that can be said. Mankind creates and forms a structure of society also in its own image. It's quoted by a man named McMath that that for which I would give anything and accept nothing in exchange is the most important thing in my life. Whatever that is, is my God. Idols will destroy us. It's something that we have to search our hearts to see if there be any wicked way in us, asking the Lord. They'll take control of your life. They'll conquer you, lead you into a place of captivity, a place of exile away from the Lord and His promises, His presence. See, when the Israel was pulled away to Babylon, they had the temple. When they were pulled away to Babylon, they had been enjoying uh, peace, safety. They were living in the promises of God. Idols. And Stephen's going to make a point about this idolatry of Israel. And it's connected with the very next thing he begins to talk about. And that's the temple. See, Israel began to idolize the temple. They began to, that was what was most precious to them. This is why Stephen's uh, words were taken at such offense. When all um, Stephen was doing was retelling what Jesus said. And he wasn't, Jesus wasn't even necessarily talking about the temple Um, when he made the comment about uh, tear down this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He's speaking about his body when he said that. Though Jesus did predict the fall of the temple. Uh, But let's look at verse 44 here in chapter 7. It says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness. As he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land, possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne. And earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So we read that through Moses, God gave Israel the tabernacle. And the temple was built by Solomon and never designed to be the dwelling place of God. The tabernacle of witness or testimony. It was, this was God's design. 
And you know what it was? It wasn't a building, it was a tent. It was a temporary structure, something that could move about with the people. And the tabernacle of the testimony was God's provision of a structure for true worship. It contained the Ark of Testimony, which was a box holding the Ten Commandments written on stone. This was God's de- of God's design and how he was to be approached. Through sacrifice for sins, through sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise, it was a way for man to enjoy rich relationship with God. And it was also a place of worship for the Jews throughout their days. And for Joshua, we learn, uh, with Joshua in receiving of the promised land, it traveled with them as they went in. And and the Lord dispossessed the Gentiles who were there, as we read earlier, worshiping these false gods. God drove them out before the face of our fathers, he says, in the days of David. Till the days of David. Now David is speaking of a time when the kingdom was established. And it was thriving. It's a time of blessing for Israel. And God, at that point, still did not ask for a building to be made for himself. But the tabernacle remained. Now, we learn that Solomon built him a house. Now, if we know the history and we've been around at church for a while, we know that David desired to build a house for the Lord and wanted to build a tabernacle. He goes, see, look at, look at how great this house is that I live in. Why is, it, why is God dwelling in a tent? Well, that's not where God was dwelling. First off, that's not where he was living. But he, he wanted to find a dwelling for a God of Jacob. And God said that, hey, you know, what you desire is a good thing. It's not a bad thing to want to build me something. But I never commanded it. But you know what? You're Solomon. I'm going to allow Solomon, your son, to build a house. And so Solomon went on to build this house. And it was a mighty one. It was beautiful. Those that had seen that glory of that temple after it had been destroyed and they had been taken into exile returned and they cried because uh, even at the rebuilding of this temple the glory wasn't even to be compared to that first one. It was such a beautiful structure. But we learn if you read Solomon and as he made this temple Solomon himself realized and quotes uh, Something very similar where he says, Lord, this temple is finished. Now I know that it cannot contain you. This isn't where you dwell. But let it be a place where we worship you and honor you. Let it be a symbol of who it is we worship. Not worshiping the building itself. And Stephen responds and says in verse 48, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. And he says this because he's saying this pointedly to the religious leaders who hear him. That phrase made with hands was used by the Jews to refer to idol worship. And Stephen's use of the phrase in connection with the temple would have upset 
these religious leaders. He was making a connection to the ears of the religious leaders that you are worshiping the temple. You are worshiping it. It has become a false idol to you. And he reminds them with the words of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? God is greater than his own creation. He cannot be contained by it. Today, there's a, a movement in Israel called the Temple Institute. Some of you may have heard of it. That's been going on since the late 80s, 1987, in which they, they're desiring to rebuild the temple and its worship, worship system as laid out in the Hebrew Scriptures. And I went on to this website and I was looking at it, and it was interesting. There was this, I watched this music video of a choir and they were singing a couple of lines out of Psalm 27. And it was, they were repeating over, that I may dwell in your temple, may I, that I may come to the temple. And I thought it was interesting because it almost seemed like the worship was towards the temple more than it was for God in, in some ways. And maybe I was influenced by Stephen's testimony here as I watched that. But the Temple Institute on their website, under their About page, it says that their goal is helping to make Hashem, which is, uh, it means God, or literally the name, um, Hashem's dream of a sanctuary in which His presence can dwell among us is the work of the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute's ultimate goal is to see Israel rebuild the Holy Temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem in accord with the biblical commandments. It is of primary importance to educate about the great significance of the Holy Temple in Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the only site in the world that is considered holy by the Jewish people. Remember, we've been studying in last week's message that we learned that the holiest place is where God's presence is. And Israel believes that it's only in this one spot is the most holy place. The only site in the world that is considered holy by the Jewish people. And the only site in the world which God chose to rest his presence through the establishment of the holy temple. So you can see their emphasis. You can see uh, even the most modern day thought process about the temple. And it reminded me of John and his gospel when it says that the word of God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Flesh in that passage of John 1 says it's literally tabernacled. Jesus, God took up a tent. The word of God took up a tent and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. By placing so much emphasis on the temple and what it means to them, the Jews are missing what God has done through Jesus, and created an idol out of the temple. See, God has a way that he desires to be worshipped, a way that he is to be worshipped and approached. We see this through the institution of the tabernacle. But like the tabernacle, God isn't confined to one location. He is at work everywhere. Not just at the church building or at a temple, 
Jesus, the one greater than the temple, who came and dwelt among us, has given us the Holy Spirit, making us, the church as a whole, 1 Corinthians 3.16, and us individuals, 1 Corinthians 6.19, the temples of God's very presence. We need to move on. In verse 51, it's so much more powerful if you can just sit and read through this whole passage of chapter 7. Because, you know, we have to take it and break it up over a couple of weeks. But Stephen is building and building and building. And, and he gets to this point that after he says that he proclaims this about the Lord... The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. And he, he proclaims the greatness of him, that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. What house will you build for me? This would have been a sucker punch right to their gut. And he starts right in at verse 51 and he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold of the coming, the, uh, foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Man, he just, you know, his argument has been so precisely laid that he, in the, you know, overpowering nature of the Holy Spirit, just lays it out on them. He has shown historically how Israel consistently rejected the work of the Holy Spirit and that the current leaders were guilty of the same thing. Their fathers killed the prophets who spoke to them about the coming Messiah and they are the ones that killed him. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belongs to the Lord your God, also the earth and all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers and to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. That is what Stephen is referring to. God has chosen you and you have remained resistant to him. Through your worship of the things that he has given you, through the, uh, the placing them above his very own son whom he had sent, the prophet, the just one, as Stephen calls it. They had that physical circumcision, that sign of the covenant that they were Jews, but they lacked the spiritual. And they were resisting what the Holy Spirit was doing. What did that look like? Well, one, they resisted Joseph. Joseph's life pointed to Jesus, the deliverer. They rejected Moses. Moses spoke of Jesus, the prophet to come. They rejected the prophets, the ones who foretold of the coming Messiah, the just one. And they murdered and betrayed Jesus himself, the prophet that Moses spoke of. 
They were so proud of the law that they had received it, yet they had not kept it to receive it. Now, when they say law, it's not just those commandments. It was all that Moses spoke, the five books. So that means that when he says not receiving or keeping the law, meant that they were... He was referring back to that same verse that you have rejected the prophet that would be raised up. Him you shall hear. And they weren't hearing him. They had closed their ears, as he says, the uncircumcised in heart and ears. They did not hear the one that God had sent. In verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And so we see with rage, they, they were stirred up. And rather than uh, submission to the Holy Spirit. Remember back in Acts chapter 2, that same phrase is used, cut to the heart, but it meant repentance. It meant that those who heard were cut to the heart and they go, what do we need to do? What do we need? How are we responding? Here, they were so resistant to what the Holy Spirit was saying, they were cut to the heart and it just made them furious. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. This was this building frustration with what uh, Stephen continued to speak. In verse 55, but he, it's a contrast here, but he being full of the Holy Spirit. So they were lacking the Holy Spirit, frustrated, upset, lashing out, filled with rage. And, Peter, uh, and Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's interesting. They had the temple right, right there. That's where they believed God's presence was. But you have Stephen here standing. He gazes up and he sees the real throne. He sees the real place where God dwelt. He saw the throne of heaven And he saw Jesus standing. And many people sought to kind of create and find out, you know, the the importance of why Jesus was standing. And one example that I thought was um, interesting was, um, actually reminded me of of a a good brother of ours who passed away uh, earlier this year, Bruce Harrison. Many of you who know Bruce, um, if you've been with him, maybe at a dinner or maybe even uh, at one of the prayer meetings or on Wednesday night, Bruce, when a lady would come into the room, would stand up. And he would stay standing until uh, that lady would come and they would sit down, whether it be caring for his wife or another lady. And that was Bruce's way of showing love and respect for that person. And it always convicted me because I'm, you know, Mr. No Manners from Southern California, you know, and then you got, you know, Bruce is Mr. Southern, you know, Virginia raised and, you know, he's got all these amazing manners that uh, I didn't even know existed, you know. And so he's, I'm seeing this example and I'm like, wow, Bruce is someone to imitate. He's somebody to, to, to pattern my life after and the respect and the love that he shows for others. But Jesus, this example of Jesus standing was receiving a loved one or an honored guest. Stephen being the first one who would lose his life for the name of Jesus. 
uh, after Jesus' resurrection. And he sees this beautiful, uh, he has this beautiful uh, look into heaven, into the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, in verse 57, it says that they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran at it with one accord. And something to note, that there was no judgment that was made. There was never a final determination on whether Stephen was guilty or not. They just yelled because they didn't want to hear him make any more blasphemous statements, covered their ears, and ran at him. And we see, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the witnesses were the ones that had to carry out the stoning. And so the witnesses, Saul uh, consenting to his death, as we see in verse 1, was standing there and he took their coats and was watching over them. As they went and they administered this uh, punishment to a blasphemer. Because the, the punishment for blasphemy was stoning. And so these witnesses laid down their clothes, were going to go get to work, and they were going to begin hurling stones at Stephen. And they stoned Stephen. Now, word stone meant it carries with the idea they kept on stoning Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. He knew whose he was. And to where he was going. In verse 60, we were read that then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Do not charge them with this sin. That's pretty powerful, right? Who does he sound like? Sounds like Jesus, right? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. What grace. What mercy. We don't know the extent of our sin and what, what it, it has. Uh, the price that Christ had to pay for those sins. And we see Stephen so full of the Holy Spirit, so in love with his Lord, and so in, in caring for even his people, those that were murdering him at that moment, Lord, don't lay this charge against them. Don't charge them with this sin. And it's interesting because we, we read later on how this prayer was actually answered. Because, as we've already read, the Apostle Paul was standing there. His name was, he's going by Saul at this moment. He was standing there, seeing this all played out. And we see the forgiveness as it extended towards him, how the Lord took him and changed his life, called him and sent him on into a ministry. And he never would forget this day, even alluding to it later on as Paul the Apostle would give his testimony. And then we read, in verse 60, at the end there, that when he had said this, he fell asleep. And what contrast. You have the rage of the religious leaders and the stillness 
of God's first martyr, or Jesus' first martyr, falling asleep. And of course, Zanini died, but truly, in Christ, it's only asleep. Because when Stephen would awake, he'd be in the presence of the Father. He'd be in the presence of Jesus who's standing at the right hand of the throne. And he'd be rejoicing in his Savior. A lot to go through this morning. I encourage you, if you have the opportunity, I've read through this whole chapter more times than I can probably count. Uh, sit down and just read through it. And just write down the things that God is speaking to you. Is there something that we're holding to too closely in a greater way than the Lord Himself? Are we distancing ourselves from God and thinking that I only meet with Him when I'm on, when I go to church? Or maybe I'm only taking the time to meet with Him when I come on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. God has made himself available to all who seek him. Has not confined himself to one location or another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this morning, Lord. I thank you for your word. Lord, as Stephen to the very end proclaimed your good news, Lord, even at the cost of his life, Lord, so caught up with you that it didn't, it didn't even, he didn't even flinch to give such a testimony before the religious leaders, those who are opposing you. Lord, and what hope we have as we see Stephen, Lord, that even if the worst thing happens, Lord, and, and we stand for you, Lord, and we lose our lives, Lord, we see you high and lifted up, Lord, reigning over all, Lord, receiving, Lord, those who are yours. That, Lord, when we know you and we have you, Lord, we have it all. Lord, I pray that you would... Just search our hearts, Lord, this morning to see if there be anything that we hold above of you. Hold above you, Lord. Lord, that we might surrender those things now, today. Lord, that we might be able to worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the goodness of, of our Savior who, who surrendered his life, Lord, upon the cross Lord, that we might be saved from our sins Lord that we might enjoy fellowship with you that we might have the Holy Spirit within us your very presence to lead, to guide, to teach Lord as we see him active and moving in this book of Acts I pray that you would just fill us Lord overflowing with your, your spirit this morning that we might be bold to proclaim you, Lord, in a, 
in a hurting world that's going astray. That you might draw people unto yourself, Lord. Just ask all these things in the name of Jesus.